So we're starting in Hebrews 4, um, and it's going to, it mentions we a lot. I just want to clarify that the we that uh, Paul is talking about here is the, the people of Israel that as uh, specifically he mentions as they've left e Egypt. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you can be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall short by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen. The word of God. Thanks be to God. It feels like a time of unrest that we live in at the moment. It feels intense. But I want you to imagine going back to the very late 70s, 60s, early 70s, a time when the Vietnam War was on, when the sexual revolution was happening, when the civil rights movement was experiencing turmoil both racially and in terms of gender. At that moment, probably the world's greatest evangelist, Billy Graham, sat down with the world's most famous uh, nighttime TV host, Johnny Carson, on The Tonight Show. 
And a very famous interaction happened between Billy Graham, the evangelist, and Johnny Carson, the TV host. Carson asked him directly, looked him in the face and said to him, when you're alone, with no one looking, when you know you're not going to be disturbed, when you've got a little bit of space from everybody around you, have you ever been tempted? Have you ever thought, hmm, I'd really like to watch an X-rated movie or look at some pornography? And Graham's answer was, I'm often tempted, but I'm never alone. God is always with me. To which Carson responds, how do you know that God's always there? How do you know that God exists? And at this point, I'm getting very excited because I'm thinking, man, there's so many places he can go. He could go philosophical. He could make the argument that Christianity is internally consistent, that it's logical, that it's rational, that empirical arguments against Christianity really are just based on different presuppositional starting places. He could have gone very philosophical. He could have gone historical. He could have gone and got all of the examples and references to Jesus, pointed out how close in history they are to Jesus' time. He could have made a great case for the fact that nearly 90% of historical figures around Jesus' time have less evidence for their existence than Jesus did. He could have gone historical. He could have also gone statistical. He could have said, I know the best possible outcome, given that rationally there's no argument that can disprove God, given historically that it's a good chance that God exists, the best possible outcome, the most reasonable response, the statistically appropriate way to approach this would be to act as if God was there, Pascal's wager, for those of you who are familiar. So I'm expecting this grand theatrical presentation by Billy Graham to the question, how do you know that God's there? How do you know that God uh, exists? Which is going to hit the philosophical, the historical, and the statistical. And Graham turns around to Johnny Carson and says, I know God exists because I spoke to him this morning. Now, at first that seems like a weird answer. But actually, it's incredibly profound. Graham is saying, because remember the preceding conversation about X-rated movies and pornography, he's saying, my behavior is shaped by the presence of God. And I know that God is present because I talk with him, not just at him, but with him. I speak and I listen to God. I speak with God. Carson and his audience are drawn into this intimate life of Graham. The great evangelist unashamedly explains how his life is shaped by the presence of God. And those watching are curious at the power of this relationship to change and has to mold his behaviors. Gently and respectfully, he gives an explanation of the hope within. You see a gentle, humble, restful confidence in Graham as he's doing this. His personal story doesn't just fit into God's big story, it rests in, big, in God's big story. Now, I did not grow up in the United States, and I wasn't a Christian in the early 70s or the late 60s, so I can't comment on the, the truth of this statement, but a number of people, particularly older people, have told me that they find the church to be anemic 
at the moment, that the church is deteriorating, that it's falling apart, that, that it's getting smaller, that it's less faithful. And certainly it's not true that we know less about God. We probably know more about God than we ever have known. Our academic knowledge of God has probably uh, increased more in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years than any time before that. But we're starting a new series today which is called Listening to God. Listening to God. Because if the church is anemic, if we find our faith to be lacking, if we're struggling with experiencing the presence of God in the way which shapes and changes our behavior, if we're not seeing the transformation that we're hoping for in our lives, then it's not because we don't know enough about God. It's because... We're not resting in God. We're not listening to God. And so that's the question. Are we as a church committed to listening to God? And, and by this I mean are we as a people whose story corporately and our stories personally rest in God's story? Is the power of God's presence experienced? Are we being transformed? Now the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 uh, which Rob read today, was concerned with these very questions. In the passage we've just read, he uses the word rest, rest, ten times. It's the theme of the passage. Now what is this rest? And we're going to look at that this week. And to quote one of those horrible steak knife type commercials, where do you get it? What is this rest and where do you get it? And we're going to break this up into two weeks because this passage is long and it's complicated and it's worthy of spending two weeks on. So what is this rest? We're going to look at this week. And we'll, look at the, we'll begin to look at where do we get this rest. We'll look at that in a sort of an a, a overview sense this week. And then next week we're going to get very practical on where and when do you get it. So let's jump into what is this rest? What's it got to do with listening? Now the word rest... I don't know about you, but it sounds sweet to me because I don't think anything probably indicates what life in the modern world is like more than the word unrest. Certainly that's true in a civil context. Look what's going on in Ukraine. Look at the division because of political bipartisanship in our own country. Look at the racial problems that we still haven't resolved, the things that happened in Buffalo a couple of weeks ago or less than a couple of weeks ago. Certainly think there's a lot of personal unrest. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people tell me in a counseling setting that they feel their life is meaningless, that they're disoriented, that they feel alienated, that they're lonely. The words, I feel inadequate, I feel insecure, I feel unfulfilled, come up all the time. Let's look at the key references in this text to the word rest. We're going to pull out three big ideas from what is this rest that they're talking about in, Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 4. Let me read verse 2 to you. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, Rob, when he was reading, made it clear as to what that was referring to. It was referring to the promises given to the Hebrews in slavery in Egypt when they left Egypt, went into the, promise, into the wilderness, into the desert, 
with the view of going into the promised land. So the rest that was promised to them was to go into Canaan, to live in the land of milk and honey, to live fruitfully. But they don't make it. In fact, everybody of the generation who leaves Egypt stops trusting that God can deliver them, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. All of them forfeited the rest of the promised land because they, choose, they chose to disregard God. It wasn't until the next generation that they were able, as a people, to move in because of the disobedience, because of the turning away from God of the original generation that left Egypt. And they wanted what should have been not more than three or four weeks' journey turned into a 40-year wandering in the wilderness. Now, we see from this in, chapter, in verse 2 that the promised land here is equated to the land of Canaan. And obviously that is not the full answer in this text. We're going to see that it's more than that. But I want you to realize something about the land of Canaan. They weren't walking into the land of Canaan to sit down. They were walking into the land of Canaan to farm it, to grow crops in it, to have families in it, to flourish in it, to do well, to do as best as was possible. This was the land of milk and honey. So, so rest doesn't mean not doing anything. Rest, in fact, is labor that is fruitful. It is the land of milk and honey. It is a lack of conflict and war. It is a removal of civil and personal unrest. It is that concept of unrest that's being referred to here. So that's the first point I want to make, and I think it's an important point, that labor is fruitful. Rest does not mean the end of fruitful labor. It means, as we'll see in a minute, the end of frustrating, of being frustrated of being restricted, of finding ourselves not fitting. So we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that in a little minute. But I don't want you to think of rest as being doing nothing. Rest is about flourishing and thriving without things getting in the way. We, meet, we read verses 3 and 4, 3b and 4. Now we who have entered believe, have believed, entered that rest, just as God said. So I declared my... I declare an oath of anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. So there's a reference here to the rest that comes after creation. God rests, God stops and looks and sees that creation is good. But I want to point out again that this doesn't mean that God is sitting on a deck chair on a cruise ship in the Bahamas. Right? God is still sustaining still animating, still preserving. He's active in making sure his providence happens. He's still making sure that his story's outcomes and his directions and his sovereign guidance is happening. He's still doing things. The rest is not rest from engagement. It is rest from creation. And as much as for us, we don't think that things are going the way they should go and the story's unfolding the way we think it should be unfolding. God is not frustrated. His story is unfolding as he intends it to. And we would have to say things are not okay. They don't seem like they are okay. But God is not a watchmaker. He didn't wind up the world in creation, walk away and see what happened. 
God is a sovereign story writer, writing a story of redemption with the narrative that he wants to write. And Hebrews, in fact, intentionally contrasts the story of God through redemptive history and creation. God is the only one that has satisfactorily entered into rest with that of Joshua and David. We see, in fact, in, uh, in verse 8, Joshua cannot bring the people rest. Now, Joshua took them into the land of Canaan, but they couldn't conquer the land. They were unsuccessful in taking and making claim to everything they had had. They were in constant war, bickering and strife. God didn't give them in the fullness that they were promised the complete area of Canaan, the land of milking honey, that opportunity to flourish and thrive. And in fact, we know that whilst there were periods of flourishing and thriving, it was an up and down, hit and miss uh, experience based on the extent to which they were able to be faithful to God. The case of David, and the text that we are reading here actually comes from a psalm written by David, Psalm 95. David is trying to exhort the people again, after again this period of up and down, the things that they need to be faithful, that they need to turn back to God. And so David and Joshua, in a sense, even though they had a holy agenda and were doing what they were called to do, experienced in this life a sort of frustration. Their holy agendas were frustrated. And yet we wouldn't say that David and Joshua didn't experience times of rest. We remember the quote from Joshua, as for my house, we will serve the Lord. And we think of David as described as having a man after David's own heart. And we see this paradox here, this great paradox, when the story, when your story rests in God's story, your story is always okay. So even though the holy agenda of David and the holy agenda of Joshua were thwarted by the people that they were leading and their unfaithfulness, Joshua and David still experienced a type of resting, a resting in God, even in the midst of the failure and the thwarting of what was going on for them in their, uh, in their attempts to be faithful to serving God. And here is the paradox, right? How can you have your godly agendas frustrated and still be at rest? How can you have your godly agendas and still be at rest? I'm going to read verse 16 now. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy, find grace, and find the grace to help us in times of need. Now we have to work this paradox out practically. If we rest in God's big story, not in our own story, we find real hope, what I would call the ultimate hope horizon, the full story, the complete narrative, the big picture, the final outcome. Now let's work that out for someone like Andre, trying to work his way through Ukraine, being detained, possibly his life at risk. A missionary coming uh, from a very difficult area in Russia, as a Ukrainian, to try to minister to Ukrainians and Ukrainian refugees, possibly with the risk of losing his life. Things are not good. Things are not okay. And yet, if he looks at the big picture, if he sees himself fitting in, not just fitting in, but resting in God's big story, 
the big hope horizon, if he doesn't see his agenda as being the determination of success and failure, he can find rest. I don't know how many of you struggle with conversations with family and friends about the political unrest in this country and have strong political opinions that you don't understand why other people don't get and understand and how that can really get under your skin and cause irritation and frustration. And yet, if we remember that this is just a small slice of time and that God does have a sovereign hand writing history, as frustrating as this moment is, we find rest, we find hope, we can trust in the ultimate hope horizon, the big picture, the final outcome. Now, none of these things are simple. Missionaries being persecuted, political bipartisan ripping our country apart, racial problems in Buffalo, experiencing a life that's meaning, disoriented, alienating or lonely, feeling inadequate, insecure or unfulfilled. But in these moments, if we can see a bigger picture, whilst it doesn't take away the frustration, the hurt, the pain, and we'll talk about that in a minute, it does underpin that with a certain hope and a, an ability to rest in the ultimate story writer of God. When I was recently on vacation, we were flying back from France to the United States. Person in the road that I was sitting at, at one point, two hours out of Boston, stood up and projectile vomited on everyone in the radius around them. And there were no other seats on the plane, and so those of us covered in vomit were asked to stand up and move this little area, some were more covered than others, and stand and wait while the flight attendants picked the bits of vomit off the seat, put uh, put uh, blankets over them and said, that's where you've got to sit. Now, a couple of people, they were able to move. Luckily, they found a seat for me. But some of the people had to go and sit back on these chairs for the remaining piece of... Now, when I... Part of the fight. Now, when I told Gail Packard about that, she looked at me and said, that's your dilemma story on a plane flying over the Atlantic at 30,000 feet? Your big problem was that someone vomited on you, so many other things could have gone wrong. There could have been an engine failure, the pilot could have had a heart attack, lots of things. This is, a, this is small potatoes. And when you think about it, yeah, I wouldn't say that was my favorite plane trip, but the destination was arrived at, in a sense, the big picture of that experience was that I arrived in Boston. All right. So, second point. The first point is labor is fruitful. Sorry, rest is where labor is fruitful. It's not where it doesn't exist. It's where we experience a land of milk and honey or rest from conflict. So there's rest from personal and rest from civil, uh, civil unrest. There's a, a break. Or The second point is that rest is not stopping. It is actively moving to be part of to put our minds and our heart in the no frustration story. And I'd call that first one living into the covenant promises and that second one living under the covenant wing. Now notice none of them are about sitting. None of them are about doing nothing. Living into the covenant promises, that, that flourishing, living into that covenant, walking under 
that covenant wing. Now, in, in this series, we are going to delve into prayer and what does prayer look like and how do we do that. But I want to unpack the last part of this text and we're going to come back and look at that practically next week, taking those two points how do you do this? Well, rest comes through prayer, but a specific type of prayer. In verse 7 and verse 11, there are two quotes that the Hebrews author makes. These are from Psalm 95, and they are uh, written by David. So I declare on oath in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And this is David in a psalm encouraging the people of Israel to turn away from their self-deceit and their abandonment and their idolatry turn back to soften their hearts to God. We don't have time to pull apart Psalm 95 and look at the structure of that, which is clearly being referenced here, but it is worth me giving you the Cliff Notes version of what that looks like. Psalm 95 begins in verses 1 and 2 with praise. Sing for joy, shout aloud, come with thanksgiving, extol him with music and song. It then moves into a relational orientation phase where it looks at God as creator, sustainer, protector, king, father, husband, lover. Now some of those I added because they're in scripture. The last three are not there, but they apply to the orientation that we can have towards God. Second line being creature, dependent, needy, submitter, child, lover. So there's this relationship-oriented peace through this prayer, this psalm of David. Then there moves into this listening phase. In verses 7, the end of 7 to verse 11. Know my ways to enter my rest. Don't repeat the wilderness mistake or you won't enter Canaan. Now, clearly, they're already in Canaan because this is King David and they've already moved into the promised land in some way. But this is a reference to that civil and personal unrest. You won't enter into my rest. You won't enter into that promised land place. You won't experience that peace of conscience uh, that's on offer. So, this listening to God comes through prayer and it comes through a specific type of prayer. Specifically, it comes through covenant-orienting prayer. So when we talk about learning to listen to God in this first way, there are three pieces that are coming out of this. The first piece is that we need to move into covenant promises. We need to move under a covenant wing, and we need to get there by engaging in covenant-orienting prayer. Now, that's pretty theoretical, and we need to spend another week digging into how to do this practically. But I want to conclude by making these points about rest. I'm going to give you a little heads up about what's coming next week, and then uh, as a teaser, and then we'll close in prayer. First of all, rest is not sitting in a hammock between two palm trees on a beach. Rest is moving from the things that get in the way of covenant living, living to being in a place of covenant living, which is mostly shifting our belief that our work should be sufficient or our merit should be, uh, should be uh, enough, or, uh, enough of a reward or, or get us out of trouble. 
See, we, wanna, we, want, we think we want rest from swimming upstream, battling a strong headwind, fighting weeds in a garden. A constant struggle, upstream, headwind, weeds. What we really need is rest from the belief that we will only be okay if we're successful swimming upstream, battling every headwind or removing every weed. Now, we should be and can be, and I'll say that again, we should be, and we can be frustrated, angry, sad, devastated, remorseful when our story, our godly endeavours, our picture or look or time frame or time snap of the world doesn't line up with what it should be or what it will be, what we would hope for and pray for. But this should also always be underpinned with the big story of certain hope. So we sit in attention. We sit in attention which allows us to find rest, not sitting in a hammock rest, but rest in the sovereignty of God, which, as we'll see next week, drives us into a place of engagement. But we can rest with the civil unrest in Ukraine, with political bipartisanship, with racial problems. Not rest that doesn't care or doesn't engage, but rest which isn't frustrated, where hope isn't dashed. We can rest even when we feel life is meaningless or disoriented or alienated or lonely, or we feel inadequate or insecure or unfulfilled. Again, not rest which doesn't engage or move, but rest which relies on and trusts in and rests in the big picture open, ultimate hope horizon. Maybe it's easy just to put it like this. When the, big, when the little stories go awry, we should always find our certain hope in the big story. It is okay. We rest in God's work and not in our own work. When the world vomits on you, remember that God is flying the plane. Now, next week, we're going to look about how to get here, how to do this practically, how to engage in this type of covenant-orienting prayer. I'll give you a hint, verses 13 to 14. It's how we pray through and engage, listen to, and are informed by Scripture. And when? Verse 7, today. So next week, we're going to be practical, both how we corporately and personally find powerful, transformative rest in our relationship with God through covenant-oriented prayer. Today, the takeaway is that rest is labor that is fruitful in the land of milk and honey, rest from conflict and war. Rest is not stopping, it is actively moving to be part of the no frustration story, moving under the covenant wing. Rest comes through prayer, particularly prayer structured around covenant or covenant structured prayer. So covenant rest comes when our prayer life leads us to lean into the covenant promises and sit under the covenant wing. Now, if this is appealing to you and you want to know how to approach Scripture, how to practice these disciplines, I would encourage you to come back next week. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, you promise that we do not have to be anemic in our faith. You promise your Holy Spirit to act powerfully and transformatively in our lives. You promise that our relationship with you 
Father changes our behavior. It changes us. And yet we are so slow to actually engage with you, to recognize that you are there. We move to the academic answers of philosophy or history or statistics, which, which are great in their support roles, but are no substitute for talking with, sitting with, covenantally engaging through prayer with you. Give us a taste, a thirst, a hungry, a hunger, a desire to do that through scripture today as we think and meditate on this this week and come back next week prepared to engage practically in developing that discipline. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.